You are listening to Concrete Conversations, an informative podcast brought to you by the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. We represent the concrete masonry and segmental paving manufacturers in Australia. Our podcast will discuss technical information and case studies with some special guests from our industry. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of the Concrete Masonry Association of Australia. On today's podcast, I am very pleased to have someone that knows everything about trees. It's one of our most commonly asked questions, and I'm joined today by Tim Johnson, who's a horticulturist, a naturalist, and an educator by training. He's director of TreeNet, and for the last several years, he's been a local government arborist. He was previously with the city of Mitcham, but he has also presented extensively on how best to plant for trees and how they are integrated into urban design, particularly in local councils. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tim, could you just, before we go into talking about trees and pavements and design, talk to us a little bit about how you really found trees, how it became part of your profession. Where did that start? Uh, It's been a 40-year apprenticeship, actually. Started out in local government in parks with a biodiversity background and looked at how we incorporate the greenery into urban areas. And right from day one, trees and pavements were totally in conflict. Everyone walks down footpaths and there's hazards, there's trip hazards, lifted pavers. And business as usual approach for so many decades has been lift the paving, cut the roots, relay the paving, the root cutting kills the trees, Mm. replace the tree, go around again, cyclical. The, The waste, the cost, the hazard and the risk just totally unsustainable and unproductive. Mm. Uh, We need the trees for all the benefits, health, environment that they provide. We need to provide them sustainably in a way that doesn't have negative impacts. So after graduating through several courses in botany, biodiversity, parks and wildlife management, outdoor education, those sorts of green areas, I was looking, well, well, what's the problem here? The problem is really the disciplines, civil engineering and urban horticulture, just weren't talking. And I started to look into that. And that's because they actually speak different languages, different words for the same things. It's been really difficult back in the the early days to communicate. There's actually been papers published on the differences in language with the disciplines. So starting to collaborate with engineers, and there were some academics at the time starting to look at these sorts of issues, tree impacts on infrastructure, tree impacts on our reactive soils, tree impacts on house footings. And the the areas I moved in, one or two of these academics contacted me with questions that I couldn't answer, but I love questions. So we started working together and after a few years, they convinced me to take on a degree by research. So all those things you mentioned at the beginning, I actually became a civil engineer. I did my PhD in civil, looking at the interface between trees and infrastructure. And that interface is soil and water. If we can get those four things working together, we can have our infrastructure right next to large, healthy, magnificent, flourishing trees that can deliver all their benefits without impacting the infrastructure. But it means communicating across those disciplines. That's happening a lot more these days, and that is inspiring. We're starting to see a lot more great projects. I've seen a lot on the CMAA website, in the podcasts. Fantastic collaborations happening 
And there's a lot of room to improve that, to increase that collaboration and to improve the results. The, the outcome of that will be huge cost savings because we eliminate the waste, longevity of assets and trees, but we'll start to get full life cycle out of the pavement and the trees. Where did, Tim, this passion for trees come from? I mean, you've talked about wanting to solve problems, but mm. was there a defining moment? Because it is a specific choice. There, there were a few moments through that 40-year apprenticeship. You start out as a kid in the early days of Adelaide playing in the creeks, in the parks, the linear parks along the, the waterways were fantastic places for kids to play. I've spent most of my holidays in the creeks and the rivers around Adelaide. The River Torrens. I'm not that old, and yes, I used to swim in the River Torrens. Now, a little bit later, you have kids and you think, well, I remember some great times, kids, let's go and do this. And you go down the creek and it's bone dry, mm. or it's in flash flood, or it's stagnant pools. There's no in-between. It's extreme. A lot of that due to urbanisation, sealed surfaces, massive storm flow, instant impact, scour, erosion, pollution, and then it bakes and dries out. So there are ways. You've got to have your kids enjoying these experiences. Mm. So we used to go off to more remote places, rainforest, Tasmania, and out in the, the wilderness areas. Kangaroo Island's fantastic, the mm. estuaries. But what a shame. Mm. I can remember swimming in crystal clear water in urban areas, chasing schools of fish. They're locally extinct now. Mm. We can bring them back. They're extinct now because of urbanisation. We can build cities better. We can bring that back better so our kids can enjoy growing up more. They can have a better connection to nature. They can have greater exposure to the microbiome, which will boost their immunities. Mm. Uh, we need to get nature back into cities. We need to get it working. We need to get it to sustain us and to save us money because the old school cyclical short term just, just wasn't working. So when we look at trees, and I'm just wondering whether you can, I've learned a lot because of this role, how trees actually grow and operate. Can you really take us through that now? How does a tree grow and where do its roots go? Yeah, that's, that's a common misconception. People look at a tree and think they're looking at a tree. They're actually looking at probably half a tree. There's as much underground as above. And it's not a, a mirror image. It's a completely alternate life form. Roots are generally really shallow in the top Nearly all roots are in the top one metre, occasionally sinkers, but they're the exception that go down to greater depths. And in that metre, most of the fine roots that do the absorbing are in very shallow. The tree roots that absorb the moisture and all the nutrients dissolved in that liquid are about as thick as your hair, and they're very short-lived. They turn over naturally in the soil. Once they've died, they oxidise, they create biopores, increase the soil porosity, which is great for drainage, for aeration, really good things we can tap into for engineering purposes but they sustain the tree. Mm. If we seal a surface with asphalt or concrete or a house, the moisture can't get through, the oxygen can't get through. Tree roots need oxygen. They respire like we do. If there's not oxygen transfer through the soil, through diff diffusion, roots can't grow. So when you seal a surface with asphalt or with sealed paving, concrete, any sealed surface, you don't get oxygen transfer, you don't get water transfer, Soil is inherently humid, 99.9% .9 humidity even in a drought, and then the surface will cool off overnight, so you get condensate form just under the surface. So the roots need liquid water. They can only grow where there's liquid water. They grow directly under the surface and they write the surface off. Mm. 
So you've got now a tree can be many metres tall above ground being sustained on condensate under the paving as the tree grows, the roots expand, and they just write the pavement, the road, the car park, just demolish it. That's how we get the tree root uplift. Yeah, Mm. yeah. That's what started us looking at permeable paving going back 15 years or so. Some work in the US looking at landfill waste, Mm. some toxic waste at Los Alamos. They had tree roots penetrating and some of the pollen on the plants nearby. Um, Bees were getting into that and honey was increasingly high radioactivity from low-level nuclear waste. So they needed to stop their tree roots penetrating the buried waste. And they started looking at gravel and scoria and found it really effective. Clay capping over gravel stopped roots penetrating to depth. We started looking at that and thought, hey, permeable paving's built on gravel. It'd probably work the same. So we set up some experiments and tested it. And yeah, roots don't like growing through gravel in Adelaide's climate. It just dries out too much. You will get roots enter it, very fine ones for a very short term, just through autumn, winter and early spring. When there's moisture there, they'll grow. Summer comes along, they just desiccate and die. Jennifer Mullaney and Terry Lukey did a similar study up on the University of the Sunshine Coast campus, just north of Brisbane, semi-humid, subtropics, 1,500 millimetres of rainfall nearly per year. The gravel deterred root growth. The roots would grow down to depth along the side of the gravel barrier and then along under the gravel. So we thought, well, with pervious paving, we're reducing the stormwater runoff, we're increasing infiltration, and we're avoiding root impacts. How can we get these together? So we started designing tree pits with permeable paving around them, and it's working wonderfully. And so just explain again, what do roots do with permeable pavers? Roots have two functions. One is to absorb moisture and nutrients, and the other is to provide structural support. They need to anchor into the soil. They, they need oxygen, they need moisture to grow, so they grow at the interface where the moisture and the oxygen are about ideal, which is not in gravel, doesn't have the moisture, plenty of oxygen, no moisture. In the subgrade beneath the gravel base layer, because the gravel dries out and the permeable paving is ventilated, the subgrade dries out as well. The surface of the subgrade actually desiccates. So the optimum soil conditions for root growth, the right balance of moisture and oxygen go deeper in the subgrade because the surface desiccates. So you get your initial roots start to grow at greater depth and as the tree continues to grow, they thicken. Mm -hmm. And as they thicken, they increase in radius, increase in diameter. They will start to expand and push up into the gravel base. They're going to lift permeable pavement gravel base rather than shift the planet. So the, the gravel does heave a little bit and you get a very rounded effect on the paving. It spreads the distortion rather than having a trip hazard. Mm. You get a, a gentle rounding movement in the pavement. And you can just lift those pavers, take out some gravel and put the pavers back. No tree roots need to be cut. And if your gravel base is 200 millimetres thick, you can have a, a tree root 200 millimetres plus in diameter before it gets to the base of the pavement level, the, the surface level. So there's massive scope there to accommodate large roots without generating a need to reset the levels on the pavement. Mm. They can be adjusted quickly and easily. The alternative standard paving on a compacted rubble base with the roots tracking below the the wearing course, the surface, to reset means cutting the roots. Mm. It gets time-consuming, expensive, messy and harms the tree. So it's much quicker, much easier. You do get a bit of pavement distortion with permeable, but it's manageable very quickly and easily and you can grow the trees to maturity. Tim, obviously trees are important and I think a lot of us think that trees are important for a couple of reasons, for the air, for canopy, but maybe could you share with us some facts that people may not be aware of, of why trees are so important? 
so many reasons where do you start mm. but, but one that most people will register with is the bottom line if we continue as we were decades ago it's just so incredibly expensive and, and short term the value of trees in the environment if we can provide them sustainably without damage to infrastructure is massive researchers all over the world are starting to look at the dollar values of the different aspects we know connection with nature is better for humans. Humans evolved in open woodland and there's a connection there. There's a whole field of environmental psychology that looks at the human relationship with nature and people generally are healthier and happier in nature. There's a huge dollar value on that because when people aren't healthy and aren't happy, it gets incredibly expensive. Mm. There was a study done 2015 or 16, um, researcher Danielle Shanahan. She was working in Brisbane and she looked at presentations for anxiety treatment and for depression treatment. So just two aspects on the mental health spectrum, anxiety and depression. And they looked at people who engaged with nature in the local park or in the street for a walk in a shady avenue, that sort of thing, versus people who engaged with nature less. And the result of that large study suggested that people who spent 30 minutes more per week connecting with nature in the park or in the street, 30 minutes per week, benefited substantially with reduced incidence of anxiety and reduced incidence and severity of depression. And she did the sums. If you could extrapolate that Brisbane population, the city of Brisbane is a massive council area, covers most of the city. If that can be extrapolated to the whole of Australian population and people across the whole of Australia could get 30 minutes more per week connecting with nature in their local parks, the saving on anxiety and depression would be several billion dollars a year. Just those two aspects. Dementia is massive. Dementia has been related to particulate air pollution and trees filter the air quite substantially. They generally reduce particulate pollution massively. Some preliminary investigation of that just recently through TreeNet suggested that a 1% reduction in particulate pollution, I think it was less than 2.5 micron, mm. the particular size that was causing problem but if we could increase tree canopy cover one percent reduction is very conservative so yeah we really do need trees in our cities we need a lot more of them and we need them in the next decade we've sort of talked a little bit about obviously common design mistakes with trees in mm. terms of trees and pavements and trees and surfaces but what are other sort of when you look at urban design what are some of the biggest mistakes you see with trees outside of that I'm of the perspective that pretty much any tree is a good tree, mm. but diversity really is key. We're in a, a changing climate, changing environment. The pandemic's another example of the sort of pressures that are going to become more common and the extremes in weather another. Diversity really is key. Avenues are fantastic, but we really need diversity of species across our cities. Different sizes, different shapes, broad spreading umbrellas, some narrow areas, tall, narrow structures. So diversity is key. Resilience of species is another key. Biodiversity aspects is another. The connection with nature, we're really looking at re-establishing ecosystems throughout cities. Mm. You shouldn't have to walk to the park to engage with nature. You should have small skinks. You should have birds in your garden or in your house. But as soon as you get in your garden and the street on the way to the park, you should be engaging with nature. It should just be there. 
So biodiversity aspects, the native plants in particular are wonderful in terms of flowering and attracting insects, native bees, not stingers, no problems, native wasps, just the ecosystem that surrounds the native plants. But don't exclude the exotics. They can add to the diversity as well. Uh, a lot of native birds here in Adelaide survive on some of the fruits from exotic trees. The, the hackberry has a small black droop, like a small berry. And the, the parrots love them. And if you're extreme enough, you can taste one when they're ripe. You've got to roll it on your tongue for a while. They're very small, thin-skinned, but they're cross between an apple and a pear. Do you know what? This is absolutely ironic. I was watching something this morning mm. on hackberries. A guy goes out and he's a chef that harvests his own food. Right. And he, just from nature, and that determined what he would eat. But with mm. the hackberries, mm. he actually put them in a blender and right. turned them into a puree with some walnuts. I didn't even know what a hackberry was. I had no idea people were doing that. I cannot believe I just found out what a hackberry was and then you just talked about it then. Connection to nature. Humanity spread across the globe, consistent with the distribution of the common oak tree. Mm. People used to eat the meal, flour, from ground-up acorns. Some cultures, very few, still do. Mm. Uh, very filling and low-fattening. Maybe we need to look at that again. <laughs> but connection with nature comes from reality that we, we need nature to survive. Do you have a favourite tree? Oh, many, many. So Hans Heysen local Adelaide artist, go to the art gallery, have a look at some of his works, have a look online. He was mid to late 1800s, the cedars up at Handorf in the hills, mm -hmm. his studio, go for a tour. He loved the, the gum trees with the, the different changes of the light. No two gum trees are the same. The patterns on the bark, they are exquisite, the big, grand eucalypts quite a few species through Adelaide, through the hills. The European trees, the broad spreading oak, wonderful tree. It's the foundation of our civilization, actually. They can be 20 metres tall and 30 metres wide plus. And if you can get into the canopy of one of them and climb around, absolutely magnificent. Mm. My favourite tree, I can remember doing some research up the riverland, fruit blocks, a rare species of parrot was causing some damage on some apricot trees. And where were the birds? They were in these two trees right down the corner, which was a particular cultivar the grower was trying. And those birds weren't silly. They were the best apricots in the history of the world. <laughs> and they were perfectly right the day I was there. Um, so it can be as small as a fruiting pruners tree, the apricot or almond or something like that. They're all magnificent. Tim, you're a director of TreeNet. Tell us a little bit about what that is about. Oh, TreeNet is a national not-for-profit research organisation. The acronym is TreeNet, Tree and Roadway Experimental and Education Network. It's completely independent, funded by members, corporate and government members, who hold a, an annual symposium, which also contributes to the funding. The entire purpose of TreeNet is to do urban forestry better and to engage with the community to do that. It's a wonderful organisation, a really core group of committed people over a long time, keeping it running and working with a host of volunteers and school groups, committees, other like-minded not-for-profits, conservationist aid groups like that, Trees for Life. That's the network part. But the focus of TreeNet really is on how can we get trees into urban areas better so trees can live their full life cycle next to assets that also need to serve their full life cycle. So that's been the focus of TreeNet and engaging the community into doing that. 
We've had some ideas we've run with, we've conducted a lot of research, we've tapped into a lot of research that other people are doing and we present that at our symposium. So it's really a a sharing network as well Mm -hmm. as conducting our own research in-house. I started volunteering very early days, I think about 1997, it had only just been founded a year or so before by Dr. Jennifer Gardner, University of Adelaide, and David Laurie, a nurseryman at the time, who was looking at increasing species diversity and doing urban trees better. So TreeNet, I'd really encourage anyone to get online, have a look at the website. Tim, if I was to ask you about some of the urban design with trees and pavers, Mm. do you have a favourite project? Many. (laughs) <laughs> Many. On on the TreeNet website, there's a link to past symposia. We hold that annual symposium. All the papers, all the presentations are video recorded. They're all available there free. I presented a paper at the last symposium, September 2021, that presented just a few case studies. There were two or three from Adelaide City Council. There was one from Brisbane. There was one in Chatswood in New South Wales, just northern suburbs of, of Sydney. Most of them I had nothing to do with personally, but I put them up because they were really good case studies. Robert Smart, landscape architect, director of Terra in New South Wales, presented to TreeNet back in 2011, 10 years ago, on the case study in Chatswood. His company, and he was involved in the redesign of that mall. Mm. And the previous mall, 20 years old, was looking tired. The trees had never really grown for all these, these reasons we've spoken about. And he was engaged to come up with a design that worked. So they looked at the constraints. There were utilities, there were services, there were structures. And they found the best place to grow the trees was straight down the middle of the mall, which used to be under the road. So they created a space for the trees down the middle of the mall, and it was a bit of a T-junction, one off to the side, and they provided an adequate volume for tree roots to grow to sustain mature trees. And by doing that, they allocated that soil area, think of it as a strata title for tree roots. There were no utilities in there. The utilities were external to that. So that became the tree place. And and they brought in new soil, constructed soil, engineered soil, and then poured piers to support the pavement above that so the soil wouldn't be compacted, drainage into that to provide irrigation. And once the soil draws the the moisture out of the pipes, soil suction is really good. Then the the roots draw the the water out of the the soil. You start to get aeration happening through the drainage system. So it's multifunction engineering for the purpose of sustaining trees, which actually reduces the stormwater discharge, reduces the pollutants, saves the creek so the kids might be able to swim in the creek again. And you look at that now and the trees are just maturing after 10, 11 years and they don't quite fill the space. But the species selection and the canyon through the mall there between the buildings, it's designed perfectly so when those trees reach maturity, they'll just stop before the buildings. So they won't need any pruning. So they won't need any surgery. The surgery has impacts on trees, has consequences. You can get infection, you can get problems. So by designing for the trees, the space is engineered for the trees the roots can flourish, the canopy can flourish, those trees can live 100 years plus. Mm. Now, in another 20 years, when that street comes up for renewal, the the paving's a little bit worn, some of the furniture might need replacing, it can all be done incredibly cheaply without harming the trees because it's all external to that allocated root zone. 
So probably see three or four or five generations of street infrastructure renewed without harming the trees. Mm. And people will go there because these broad spreading shady trees on a hot day, they can sit around on the furniture under these canopies. It's just like being in a botanic garden and it's one of the main streets through town. Mm. Rob, who designed it, wanted his legacy to be a plantation that could survive for its natural life. Mm. And he's achieved that without impacting on the existing infrastructure, which can be renewed without impacting on the trees. And probably, I don't know, 120, 150 years time, some of those trees might need to be replaced. And there will be a huge push from the community to replace them without any impact on the infrastructure. It was just a wonderful outcome. Mm. So that's probably my favourite case study. But the others are right up there with it. What have you seen in your 40-year apprenticeship What are some of the changes that you've seen with regards to trees that we haven't spoken about? A lot of negative changes with regard to trees. There's incredible pressures against planting trees. This time now we need more trees and bigger trees. The constraints, the utilities, the services have legislation that suggests, oh, you can't plant within three metres of this service or within two metres of that service. So there's a lot of restrictions on planting. They've been around for decades, but they're being enforced more now. And times when we need more trees, we've got more people, we need better connection, we we need to look at reviewing those regulations. They're really limiting. Other changes, just the scale of urbanisation. If you put all the cities, just the cities across the world together, they add up to about three and a half times the area of the United Kingdom. England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Multiply that three and a half times. That's a lot of roof and asphalt and concrete. That's having an impact on the planet. We need to green that, get more trees into that area. That's huge. That's happened in our life, in my lifetime. Urbanisation is exponential. Add climate change to that, urban heat island effect. Massive change in my lifetime. It all gets harder for trees. We need to look at the species we plant. We need to plant trees from warmer climates. What's your biggest learning, would you say, from using pavers in urban design? The biggest learning, right from day one, is the need to collaborate. We have a very siloed workforce. The landscape architects think it's their role to design the urban realm, the public realm, and it is. And the civil engineer's perspective is it's their role to design the public realm so that it works. And it is. Mm. And the horticulturists want to plant things as much as they can, wherever they can. And that's their role. None of them can achieve what they want unless they all get together. Mm. So collaboration. Rob Smart's project in Chatswood, getting together to allocate that root zone space to build it correctly so that it functioned for the trees and for the pavement on top of it and for the drainage. Massive collaboration right from concept, not here's a plan, how do we make it work? Like get in before that, here's the project we've got to develop. Mm. What do we want? Right at scoping stage, you need that collaboration and it needs to involve all parties and that needs to follow right through until after it's built to make sure it's worked and to make sure it's maintained. See, designers... Their plans are finished, they're signed off, their job's done. Engineers, they spec up the engineering, job's done. Contractors pick that up, build it, job's done. Horticulturists plant it, well, there's no point because that hasn't followed through, it's not designed for, it doesn't work. You can buy a new truck, it's fantastic when you buy it. You can buy a new piece of park furniture, it's at its best when it's new. 
you can't buy a new garden in the public realm and put it there and it's at its best. Procuring nature in cities is a process mm. and it needs to be designed in right from the start and incorporated through the process and sustained and maintained well after the building's finished. If we can get that right, collaboration, thorough, right through from start to finish, we'll start saving a lot of money, we'll start building much better cities and we'll have much happier, healthier communities. We really need to work on collaboration. It's a good point and it's come up as quite the theme. Do you have a fun fact around trees and pavers that we may not be aware of? (laughs) Some say I'm a fun guy. Okay. I'll give you two facts. One, one made me laugh, but trees don't have teeth. Okay. That, that comes as a surprise to very few. Trees don't have teeth. They can't chew their food. The nutrients they need, apart from CO2 that comes in through the leaves and the occasional little bit of nutrient through the foliage, the nutrient comes in dissolved in the water that they absorb through their roots. They can't chew. They've got to live on slushies, smoothies, which can be quite healthy. So my daughter would tell me. To dissolve the nutrients into that water, a lot of nutrients are really stable in the soil. The work of dissolving those minerals into nutrients accessible to the plants is the role of the fungi. No trees live in isolation. They need fungi on their root systems. There are symbiotic relationships with naturally occurring fungi in the soil that live with the roots and nourish the tree. So fungi, critical. And and that's critical for us in terms of microbiome and immunity as, as well. We're, we're talking complete systems here. Probably that's one of the other learnings as well as collaboration. You've got to look big picture. Mm. If we focus down on narrow, this is our task to deliver. We deliver it, end of story. Does it work? Who knows? We've delivered it. Big picture and collaboration. The other story that made me laugh, I was doing some research, you come across some fairly obscure things. I found this paper from a about the 1960s or 70s, someone had scanned it and put it online. It had handwritten notes on it. And it was an old scientific paper draft that was typed, the old ribbon days, pre-word processor. And I thought, what is this ancient paper? And started reading the abstract and it blew me away totally. There was this problem back then, decades ago, with wear and tear at an intersection. And no matter what the engineers tried, it just wasn't up to it. It was failing abysmally. They tried several things. So they finally got onto segmental concrete paving, not permeable, the standard impermeable concrete segmental paving. And they used that and they put it in on a substantial base. And this paper concluded that it was the most resilient road treatment ever. It served their purpose where nothing else, none of the standard business-as-usual approaches would work. That was the result. That's their solution. And the problem intersection was the main intersection of two main thoroughfares on the US Army's tank range. They were running 50-ton tanks on steel tracks, and this intersection was getting chewed out very quickly no matter what they did but segmental paving lasted the longest. And if it'll stand up to 50-ton tanks screwing around on steel tracks, maybe we should use more of it on our roads and perhaps we could even go for permeable. (laughs) Tim, thank you so much. Just in closing with trees and designing urban spaces, what would be the one sort of message or thought you'd like to leave us with? 
if you're looking at getting trees into urban areas, if you need hard paving close to them, try and make that hard paving permeable on a reasonably meaty gravel base, 150, 200 millimetres minimum, depending on the size of tree. We probably need to design up some standards. But if you can permeable pave around your trees, that's the second best option to leaving natural bare earth with mulch around your trees. It will give you the hard surface you need and prevent a lot of hazards and eventually save a lot of money in trees. Tim, thank you so much. We are going to put a list of all the resources you've mentioned in the show notes because I like to do other things while I'm listening to podcasts. But thank you for your wealth of information and everything you do for our industry. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure and I'll talk at the drop of a hat and I will drop my own hat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Tim. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.